Hey, listeners, there's a brand new show on Legal Talk Network about the First Amendment called Make No Law. Trust me, it is phenomenal. Here's a quick trailer about the show. News and pop culture are full of controversies about free speech and the First Amendment. We hear terms like hate speech and heckler's veto in a barrage of coverage about campuses, protests, and even wedding cakes. But what does it all mean, and how did we get here? That's exactly what my new show, Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from Hopat.com, will explore. I'm Ken White, and I invite you to tune in every month for the history, stories, and personalities behind the right to free speech and the most important Supreme Court cases establishing it. You can find Make No Law on LegalTalkNetwork.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory but practical information that you can use in your law practice right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 89th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is Ethical Misadventures in E-Discovery. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, SiteLock, the global leader in website security solutions. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Well, today, Sharon and I are talking about ethical misadventures in e-discovery, a topic that we discussed in a brand new presentation that we gave just last Friday for the Virginia Trial Lawyers Association. So let's get it started, Sharon. All right, I'll take it away here. As we told our audience last Friday, it's all too easy to step off a precipice without realizing that you were ever on the precipice. It really is very simple to do, and we're going to talk about some stories that make that clear to you that it's something to be alert about at all times. The terrain around you shifts constantly in e-discovery, and you don't want to find yourself falling into a sand trap. So one of the things that we talked about was California, which became in 2015 the very first state to require competence in e-discovery. And basically what that opinion said, and, and believe me, you do want to listen to this even if you're not in California, it said if you're not competent to handle an e-discovery matter, you have to acquire the skills needed, you have to find a skilled lawyer or get expert assistance, or you have to decline the representation. Now, that's pretty blunt. The thing 
that is really striking about this is that I know in my own state of Virginia, our bar council has said, hey, we may not have an explicit ethics rule, but it's implicit in Rule 1.1 competence. So basically, that's what bar council in Virginia lectures you must do, whether or not there is an ethics opinion. So I think that goes probably for a lot of other states as well. So we also talked a little bit about some of the the common areas where lawyers get in trouble as they're dealing with their digital evidence. And there's some obvious ones, social media, those types of things, uh, posting things about cases on Facebook or tweeting about things or stuff like that. Certainly confidential information. They, They shouldn't be doing that. Another area is Yelp reviews. So if somebody puts a a bad review out there and maybe a prior client of yours and says, geez, you know, I really, this attorney really didn't do a good job for me at all. I didn't get the expected results and it cost me a heck of a lot of money. Uh, You certainly don't want to answer that Yelp review with with something along the lines of, well, if if you weren't beating your wife all the time, you wouldn't have gotten what you got. So And that's a real case. That's true, yeah. (laughs) So that's one area. Deceit and criminal activity, you know, borrowing from trust accounts, that's another area that attorneys get in trouble with. Hiding the ball as part of e-discovery, just throwing massive data dumps at people. The judges don't like that when you're not playing fair, if you will. Attorney misconduct in court, and that happens on both sides, from the prosecution as well as from the defense side. Sharon already talked about the incompetence with the technology, but if you don't know it yourself, you need to get some help about what the technology issue is. And then we've also seen cases, too, where you've had manipulation of, of, of documents and uh, backdating of documents and things like that in order to cover your tracks because maybe you missed a deadline or something. So you, you generate this letter that said to your client saying that because they're in ill health, the statute of limitations, we're not going any further with this thing. And then they've misdated those, those documents. So those are just some areas, at least and real-world areas of, of where lawyers have gotten into trouble when they're dealing with uh, electronic evidence. Well, as you referred to, John, the judges have lost patience with e-discovery ignorance, and we have seen people say, uh, th- there's one great one here, where an attorney said, I have to confess to this court, I am not computer literate, I have not found presence in the cybernetic revolution, I need a secretary to help me turn on the computer, this was out of my bailiwick. <laughs> it sounds like some of our and, clients, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get a new line, right? But the judge in that case basically said professed technological incompetence is not an excuse for discovery, misconduct, and sanctions were awarded. But we've also heard judges say things like, why are you standing in front of me if you don't know the basics of e-discovery? What do you mean you did an email meet and confer? And then we've heard, this actually came from uh, retired judge, magistrate judge David Waxey. He used to say that if you think the other side is unreasonable, have your next meeting videotape for me so that I can see. And he said he never got a videotape, so that was pretty effective. He also said notoriously, and I love this line, that lawyers are like particles in physics. They change when observed. <laughs> so that's a good line. And Judge Vanaski from uh, Pennsylvania talked about the fact that he he actually told people if the other side was supposedly very unreasonable that he would get on the phone while they were having their phone meeting or actual meeting and he never had that phone call either so if you're active apparently there's there's some things you can do notably in february of this year there was a federal judge survey report that was issued in which it was said that only 23% of judges thought that 
typical attorneys who weren't specialists in e-discovery, but typical attorneys, only 23% of them had the legal and technical competence that they needed. 63% thought that their judicial peers were competent, which I thought was high, and I thought it was high in the sense that it's probably accurate because we have seen the judges getting more and more sophisticated. Magistrate Judge Fasciola, who's now retired, wrote in the report, it is distressing to start a new year with old bad news that lawyers still do not get it, and the chasm between the few who get it and the many who do not is still the size of the Grand Canyon. It was also noted in that report that the lack of cooperation is the major reason that lawyers get themselves in trouble. Another challenge that the attorneys have, especially when we're talking about the electronic evidence in the digital era, is the massive amounts of information that we have to deal with now. Um, so this, this whole concept of, of big data, there isn't a single case, I think, that you're going to run across where there isn't some form of electronic evidence at issue even though you may not think that there is. Email in particular is probably pretty prevalent in, in pretty much all cases. It may, it may not be appropriate. The evidence may not be appropriate in, in the email, but you certainly need to consider it. But attorneys got to deal with this massive amounts of information. So be careful what you ask for. Don't ask for that. Uh, what is that phrase, Sharon? Uh, any and all, right? <laughs> yeah. You, <laughs> if you, you, you're going to get a dump. <laughs> so, you know, you need to make sure your requests are narrow and very specific and you come to some agreement with the other side, those, those types of things. But another term that attorneys may, may or may not be aware of is dark data. And this is data that you hold that you don't know that you have it. And it could be squirreled away on, on a USB drive or something. You maybe got it from your client and somebody stuck it in a drawer somewhere because, and they haven't had a chance to review it. But but you have all this data that you don't know that you actually possess. Data in the cloud. More and more people now are using cloud services. And when we're using cloud services, do you remember all of the information that you put up there in the cloud? Because more and more, Office 365 is an example. I mean, more and more attorneys now and more and more of our clients are are moving to Office 365 and, and OneDrive and you know SharePoint Online and all those kinds of things. Well, you don't have your hands around that. It's not sitting on a server in your in your computer room. It's up in a cloud. Microsoft has that or whoever, Salesforce or whoever, whatever cloud system you're using. So we need to address all of that stuff as, as well. And the amount of data and the types of data that are in the cloud vary by vendor. So you have to be knowledgeable about all that. We talked about social media earlier. You know, certainly social media, I think, is here to stay. Unfortunately, I think it's here to stay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although currently sliding down a bit, uh, at least Facebook. Well, Facebook is, yeah. But, but, you know, which amazes me that the recent news about Facebook, everybody's jumping ship on Facebook and they're jumping to Instagram. Which Facebook right, and those, <laughs> Apparently those Instagram users now, they never realize that. <laughs> so it's if you're trying to send a message to Facebook, you really didn't do a good job with it. But so you have all that information and there's more and more of those things coming up all the time, right? I mean, it used to be, what, two years ago, a year, two years ago, Kick Messenger was the was the text messaging app of choice. You know, today it's, it's WhatsApp. The landscape shifts so much. The unfortunate part is as, as an attorney, when you get into legal action, you're usually behind the curve already. So the legal action that you're involved with today probably has something actually occurred two years ago, three years ago. So you need to understand what that technology was in place back then, not what's in place today. So having said that, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. At least 80 of the 100 biggest law firms in the country have been hacked since 2011. Protect your firm and your clients from cyber attacks with SiteLock. 
Their industry-leading cloud-based suite of website security solutions includes website scanning, web application firewall, including distributed denial of service mitigation, and 24-7, 365 US-based customer support. Give your firm and your clients peace of mind knowing their information is secure. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. You may recall, John, that several years ago we were at a CLE and we saw Judge Ellis from the Eastern District of Virginia, and he said, I may not have gotten the quote word for word, but it's darn close. He said, if I find that you are hiding the ball, you better hope that you never end up in my court again, because I promise you, I will remember your name. <laughs> now, he, he, he was pretty clear about what he meant yep. there. And let's talk about people who do hide the ball and the deliberate spoliation we sometimes see. And occasionally we see attorneys involved in the spoliation. It can be tempting. I understand that. And one of the photos we use is we have a photo of a little mouse and he's looking at a, a mouse trap that has a nice big piece of cheese in it. And he's got a little football helmet on his head. So I use that to analogize to lawyers that, you know, they think that they're going to get away with it because they have some kind of little football helmet. And it might be just a little bit of technology or they think they're smarter than the next guy. They're, they're just smart enough to be dangerous to themselves is usually what happens. Because although it's easy to delete stuff, how do you hide the fact that you hid? That is much harder. And we are often hired to find the evidence of spoliation. So there's a lot of things people don't understand. They don't understand where all the data resides, where you might have to delete it in multiple places. They can't hide the evidence of the deletion. People may have saved damning texts and emails, yada, yada. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. And one of the most famous stories about spoliation involving an attorney actually comes out of Virginia, an attorney by the name of Matthew Murray. We talked about this last week, and I felt a little bad because Matthew Murray was the past president of the VT to who we, we were speaking, but he stepped off that precipice. He had a case involving a concrete truck which rolled onto his client's car, killing the client's wife. And along the way, his client apparently had some stuff on Facebook and he actually told his paralegal to tell the plaintiff to clean up his Facebook page. So he had things like himself in a T-shirt that said, I heart hot moms, things like that. The photos were in fact deleted, but later recovered. But that email that he sent to the paralegal that the lawyer sent, he called it the stink bomb email, which it certainly was. Um, you know, he told the paralegal not to produce it. She didn't. He blamed the paralegal, then later kind of recanted on that. Ultimately, he got a five-year suspension from the bar. He had to pay a $542,000 fine, and he, he ended up leaving the practice of law, which is, is, of course, very sad. But he was found guilty of failing his duty of candor, fairness to opposing parties and counsel, and engaging in dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. Now, that's a lot for an attorney to get that messed up to make those kind of decisions. So it, that's a good case for attorneys, I think, to know and read and take to heart, just in the sense that, you know, you've always got to do what your ethics code and your professionalism rules, what they require of you. Further on that, we, we told a couple other stories, too, about the mishaps of what attorneys have done. And, and one in particular was a DOJ attorney. It was a case that they were filing an investigation against a former Deutsches Bank trader. 
and they had put this evidence or, or data, if you will, into a motion, uh, and they redacted portions of it. But the way they redacted it was all wrong. It effectively, was was using a, a black marker, if you will, a black highlighter. But the font was in gray. It was a gray font, so it was very easy to even see what that the words were there. Kind of like a, in a, in hidden figures, right, Sharon? When it, <laughs> she holds up the the, the, the redacted <laughs> yep. stuff to the light to see what the numbers are, similar kind of thing. So if uh, the message there is that if you need to redact information, redact it properly. You know, have that technical competence that we've been talking about. If you're using PDF, you know, learn how to how to redact a PDF properly. Don't just put a highlighter on it because many, many times all you have to do is just do a copy and paste of that information and it'll dump those words into another document as an example. But in this particular case, since they did this improper redaction, it pretty much almost blew their case open because they revealed the nature of testimony of the testimony that this trader had that was uh, compelled testimony in the UK. And when you do that, you stand the, the risk of and this was a cross-border case, which they didn't understand, you stand the risk of that evidence being thrown out because you disclosed it and revealed it. So that was a really big boo-boo for them. Another, another case that we talked about involved a law firm leaking Pepsi's secrets of an internal investigation to a Wall Street reporter. Now, we, we believe or we think that this is as a result of autocomplete. You know, when, you, when you're filling out an email address and you, the address fills in automatically and they, whoever they're trying to send this, this information to, it ended up going off to a Wall Street reporter. And then that happens more often than not. This autocomplete gets a lot of people in trouble. But it had to deal with the Pepsi had uh, an internal investigation into an acquisition of a, a Russian drink company that they had acquired. And the general counsel had departed at that same time. The SEC was investigating this as a result, you know, too. So the SEC was involved in all this. But essentially, was a the history of Pepsi's whistleblower activity is what was revealed off to the Wall Street Reporter, and it certainly wasn't the intention of the the law firm to do that. And we tell these stories to the attorneys primarily so that they understand this is real world things. Things these things have really happened to people. Because we certainly can't make all this stuff up, but <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody could. But a, but a lawyer in the Wells Fargo data breach case, uh, what had happened there is that they were involved in this uh, legal action, and the attorney was reviewing the electronic evidence in order to produce it to the other party. And what they what she ended up doing was giving off the private information, the names, social security numbers, investment portfolios, the fees overcharged, whatever, for a boatload of the Wells Fargo clients, about 50,000 of them, if my memory is right, that she sent over there. But at the end of the day, she didn't understand how to use the review platform that they had. So, you know, think of it this way. When you're reviewing the evidence, you get like an Excel spreadsheet and the stuff was coming up and only so many rows were showing. And apparently she didn't notice the little button down in the lower right-hand corner that said more <laughs> to look at all the rest of the data. So it was a very small subset of it. And then she blamed it on the, on the vendor error, the vendor processing error. But no, it was really the attorney's error. They didn't know how to use the tool properly when they're reviewing it. And what I thought was kind of comical about this is once the other side got this information and they went, whoa, man, this is, this is kind of confidential information. They should, we shouldn't have gotten all this stuff. And so they notified this, the lawyer and she immediately fires off this email that says that they have to return the CD ASAP, even though the amount of data that was shipped over there was 1.4 gigabytes. 
which is about twice as much as what a CD can hold. So she didn't understand even the terminology <laughs> to use. It had to have been a DVD if it was an optical disc. So, you know, it's, again, we can't make this stuff up, but that's another place where you need to understand and you need to learn the tools that you're going to use, right? If you're dealing with electronic evidence, and as I said earlier, there's a boatload of this stuff <laughs> that you need to review and go through. Now, the good news is, and, and you know this, Sharon, is that artificial intelligence is starting to come into the e-discovery world now. So a lot of the machine learning things are, are happening that are going to help lawyers. So hopefully we'll, we'll minimize the kind of mistakes that, uh, that this one did. Well, let's talk about what I consider to be one of the most comical things that happened recently. And that was last year when Jared Kushner's attorney he has, of course, many, but Abby Lowell is a, a very reputable and respected lawyer here in the D.C. area. But he was fooled by a United Kingdom prankster who pretended to be Jared Kushner. And he wrote asking Lowell about some adult material on one of his private email accounts. Now, Lowell, being a very reputable man, advised the phony Kushner to preserve the evidence, which, of course, was sound advice. Then Lowell got an email from the Senate Intelligence Committee, and they were angry that Kushner had not disclosed a private email account. Now, this is where Lowell, I'm sure he's learned a lesson now. He took that email from the Senate Intelligence Committee and he sent it to the fake Kushner, the imposter. And what do pranksters do? Well, that's what this guy did. He posted it on Twitter. So, of course, it made the funny papers. The communication really, method of choice. <laughs> oh, my golly. Oh, my golly. And you you know that Mr. Lowell did a face palm when that happened. But the message there is, you know, we have to be careful as attorneys to know what the authorized email addresses are for our clients. And especially if they are clients who are powerful, famous, whatever, you really want to make sure that you know who you're talking to because there are pranksters out there. On another case from Virginia that happened in February of last year, Harleysville Insurance Company versus Holding Funeral Home uh, Incorporated at all was kind of instructive. First off, the, the one party sent the discovery materials to the other side and, and put it in, in a Dropbox. Well, not Dropbox, it was actually Box is what they used. But I can't tell you the number of times, and you know this as well, is that where people are moving confidential electronic information, electronic evidence via Dropbox or, or some file sharing system, and they're not encrypting it first. And that's become... Just dead commonplace. Just dead. Oh, I know. I, I can't. Well, we probably what at least once a week or, or every two weeks we see we see that happening. You know that lawyers are doing it, no matter what we tell them. Yeah. <laughs> They're not listening, John. <laughs> yeah, and maybe we need to use a different language or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but the magistrate judge in that point said that well, you know, he awarded sanctions and did all this other stuff, and says that you know you can't doing that because it's it's akin to putting the information on a park bench, leaving it on a park bench. That ruling was overturned later because they were using box, and the rationale and, and why it was overturned was that the box creates this random file name, if you will, or folder name for, for these things. So it's not really visible to search engines where you just do a Google search and find it or and or guess what it is. 
but it was still in the public view. And, and I, you know, I'm not so sure that I agree with the reversal, but they never called me to ask before beforehand. <laughs> um, but it wasn't quite as open in fairness right, to, yeah. to the judge. It wasn't quite as open as everybody had made it out to be. But, you know, it, is it a smart play? No. But in the in the filings, though, in the motion that they filed, they actually identified and put in the public record what the darn link was. Well, that's the part that troubles yeah. me. So, you know, you there's your park bench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once you do that, all bets are yeah. off. But had the thing been encrypted, it would not correct, have been. Correct, so the, yeah. the link, you would have had to need credentials. So, all right, we're doing good here, John. Do you think we should move on to our last segment and uh, take a quick commercial break? That sounds like a great idea. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is ethical misadventures in e-discovery. Now, I am the first one to say I am not an expert on the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. <laughs> That's not what you had in the slide last week, though. <laughs> I know. Thank you for fixing the slide, John. And did you have to bring that up? <laughs> oh, it's a good thing we're married, dear. All right. Effective on May 25th. So uh, it's coming up quickly. The GDPR is going to affect a lot of people who are not prepared. I mean, this is a a nest of snakes that lawyers are going to walk into and everybody knows it because for some reason we just have not gotten up to speed. Most of the law firms have not. Only the probably the largest law firms have had a tendency to prepare for this and even they may not be wholly prepared. Now, who does this impact? It impacts any entity that offers services to European Union residents and also to entities which control, process, or hold personal data of EU residents. Now, we asked last week at the VTLA, we asked how many people fell under this, and there certainly was a good minority of folks who this would apply to. So I know that there might be solos and smalls that never deal with any of this, but there are going to be a good number of folks, even among the solos and smalls and among the mid-sized firms and certainly the large firms that are going to have to comply with what is a very serious set of regulations and the fines, the fines for disobeying this thing, not being in compliance, are horrendous. So if you have not looked into it, and if you are doing e-discovery that may involve European Union residents, it's time to come up to speed and quickly. So let's close out a little bit with and talk about TAR or, or technology-assisted review, uh, searching, and, and those kinds of things, because I think that's any attorney that's dealing with uh, electronic evidence in a case needs to know about these things. Early days, it was predictive coding was the big buzzword. It, it went around with, what was it, CAR, computer-assisted review. Uh, TAR, technology-assisted review, is kind of stuck now. That's what everybody is pretty much using as a term. Uh, we're at TAR 2 right? The second generation of it. Uh, Continuous active learning is being used a lot within the Tartu environment. And I mentioned AI earlier on, where artificial intelligence now has really come into the e-discovery market. 
Now, in the early days, this stuff was pretty expensive, and you had to have a big case worth a lot of money in order to really use it. The good news is the pricing has come down quite a bit for any of these uh, these tools. A lot of the tools are online now, so you could just use an online repository and upload your data, uh, use a web browser, and, and you know access the information, tag it for privilege or redact it or do any of that stuff. But even the courts have accepted it as a method of review. We even had, again, in, in Virginia, a uh, case, uh, Global Aerospace Incorporated versus Lando Aviation LP. That was back in 2012, where Judge uh, Chamblin uh, had uh, ordered that to be used. But why don't you talk, Sharon, a little bit about your experiences with Judge Peck and, and what his view on TAR was? Oh, I don't know if we want to go back there. I, I wrote a blog post a long time ago. <laughs> A long time ago, in which I suggested that Judge Peck, who was a, quite an evangelist on the speaking circuit for technology-assisted review, that maybe he shouldn't decide a case that effectively was going to embrace it. I thought perhaps he should recuse himself. Well, some years later, I was with him at a conference, and he, he was very kind. He has forgiven me and all is well, and he agreed to pose with our company mascot, which was wonderful. And basically, he wrote another opinion, which I really liked, in which he said that it should be up to the parties to determine what to choose. He was not going to compel a party to decide to do tar rather than search words. He, he figured the party was in the best position to decide, and that certainly seems to me a very sound decision. We do still see in many small cases, it just doesn't make sense to go to tar, which is, it's come down in price, but it's still bloody expensive, and it's complex to ramp up to do it in the first place. And, uh, you know, a lot of cases, it just isn't worth it. You know, doing the good search terms and doing it well with an expert could be quite sufficient. Don't you think, John? Yeah, I believe that. But don't agree blindly towards search terms. Make sure that you you're, you get to some realistic agreement between both parties. But if you're dealing with email, certainly don't include the domain name of the parties as a search term because you might as well, you're not going to filter anything. You're going to get everything that way. So it's just be smart about terms. Should we quickly mention the Fannie Mae case? Go ahead. That is such a great lesson for lawyers. This hapless lawyer went to court without his expert, and he agreed to a stipulation whereby the other side got to determine all the search terms, and they came up with a lot of them. And so they ended up spending a fortune. In fact, they spent 9% of his agency's budget yep. on this discovery. So it was way out of proportion, and that's just foolish. I mean, if you're going to negotiate without knowledge, that doesn't make any sense, and it could end up being a nightmare, and it certainly was here. So competence first, or if you can't be competent, don't do it. Get an expert or learn it yourself before you proceed down such a dangerous path. And I think we have to call it a wrap there, John. Yeah, I think you're right. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.